Greetings once again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor and preacher at Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley, West Sussex in the southeast of England. It's my privilege to work with you through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Victorian pastor and preacher who was so blessed by God in making known the Lord Jesus Christ, holding him up, holding him out, that others may come to know him too. And while we don't think Spurgeon is in any way perfect, we do think he is greatly gifted and there's much for us to learn from reading his sermons and considering what it means to truly preach Christ Jesus. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon or you can sign up at www.mediagratii.org podcasts for a weekly newsletter where we set out both what is the uh, reading scheme for the week and then the featured sermon. So this week we're reading sermons 290 to 296, 290 to 296. We're in the new Park Street pulpit, volume 6, which means we're not far off the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, uh, the, uh, the bulk of those written down sermons. Our featured sermon this week is 296, entitled A Revival Sermon from Amos chapter 9 and verse 13. Behold, the days come, says the Lord that the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that sows seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Amos chapter 9 and verse 13, preached at the beginning of 1860 on January the 26th at Exeter Hall in the Strand. Now, if you think that by preaching a revival sermon, Spurgeon believes that he can bring revival down, make revival happen, you would be sadly mistaken. Spurgeon is convinced, he's persuaded that revival is a God-given blessing, but he's also convinced that it's something that we should consider, we should pursue, we should be grateful for, we should desire and celebrate. And so he's preaching from this passage in Amos chapter 9 as primarily a spiritual picture, a promise of gospel fulfillment, and he believes that he's beginning to see something of that favour. Now Spurgeon's uh, particular convictions about this may not necessarily be ones that we all share, but I think we can certainly uh, take the, the grain of this, the kernel of this, uh, the spiritual realities that are presented here and enter into the sermon that Spurgeon preaches as he takes the text as a promise of revival, as a lesson of doctrine, as a stimulus or encouragement for Christian exertion and as an opportunity for a word or two of warning to those whose hearts are not given to Christ. So the first thing then is the promise of a spiritual revival, a great promise here in this text. And Spurgeon is going to hold up before us a number of what he simply calls pleasant things. First of all, then a promise of surprising in-gathering, then the idea of amazing rapidity, then the activity of labour mentioned in the text, then uh, uh, this dropping of sweet wine on the mountains and what that might mean, and then a time of revival followed by very extraordinary conversion. He's probably moving a little bit further beyond the text as he goes through there, but nevertheless, there's a lot here to appreciate. So the first thing then is a promise of surprising 
in gathering. And he talks about the experience of God's people during a season of lethargy and soul poverty and neglect among the ministers. Uh, like Pharaoh's dreams, there have been lean years when it seems like very little is accomplished. And says Spurgeon, he believes that we're about to see seven fat years. So in his experience at his time, he was seeing those suggestions that the, the time of poverty was giving way to a time of spiritual fullness. He says, God is about to send times of surprising fertility to his church. When a sermon has been preached in these modern times, if one sinner has been converted by it, we've rejoiced with a suspicious joy. We have thought it something amazing. But brothers, when we've seen one converted, we may yet see hundreds. When the word of God has been powerful to scores, it shall be blessed to thousands. And where hundreds in past years have seen it, nations shall be converted to Christ. So Spurgeon is saying, and it's the experience certainly of a number of the churches that I know, that we're delighted when one or two people profess faith. In fact, some people are even suspicious at that. We've become so unused to seeing people saved from their sins that we almost doubt that it can happen. And says Spurgeon, what we have in this text is a promise of a great ingathering, that the Lord will bring people to himself in measure and in numbers that we have not yet seen. God bringing in, gathering in multitudes of sinners and uh, then moving on this idea of amazing rapidity, that not only is it happening, but it's happening more rapidly. And again, Spurgeon uh, talks about the experience of some of the Baptist churches in the country who treat young converts with what they call summering and wintering. That is, it, it takes time for that man or woman to prove that they are indeed one of God's people. It's what we sometimes refer to as a credible profession of faith. But there's a danger there, says Spurgeon. We imagine that conversion must be a slow work and that the progress in the heart of the gospel is slow. We have come to believe, he says, that there's more true divinity in stagnant pools than in lightning flashes. We cannot believe for a moment in a quick method of travelling to the kingdom of heaven. Every man who goes there must go on crutches and limp all the way. But as for the swift beasts, as for the chariots whose axles are hot with speed, we do not quite understand and comprehend that. Now, Remember that Spurgeon isn't saying we should be careless about conversion. If you look at some of the questions that he asked of uh, converts or professing converts, he still puts his finger right on the nub of the matter. He's insistent on seeing a change of heart, uh, a dis change of disposition, a change of action, a change of conviction. But his point is that when God works, he works rapidly at such a season as this. And we must not impose a necessary slowness where God is pleased to move at pace, that the plower then shall overtake the reaper. But a third blessing, the activity of the labour, because God doesn't promise that there'll be fruitful crops without labour, but rather ploughmen and reapers and treaders of grapes and sowers of seed, and all these persons girt with singular energy, possessed of real vigour and endeavour. 
And here then is another sign of a true revival, not only that God brings in a great number, not only that God brings in that great number with great speed, but that there is great endeavour among God's labourers in seeking those who are outside. So an essential part of true revival is the increased activity of God's labourers. Now, if you think that uh, uh, Spurgeon sometimes gives it to us pretty strong, then you need to strap in. Time was when our ministers, he says, thought that preaching twice on Sunday was the hardest work to which a man could be exposed. Now, my friends, we are well beyond this. In a lot of churches today, it is considered quite a significant investment that a minister should preach once on Sunday. And Spurgeon says that is pathetic. Poor souls. They could not think of preaching on a weekday. Or if there was once a lecture, they had bronchitis, were obliged to go to Jerusalem and lay by, for they'd soon be dead if they were to work too hard. No, the kind of preaching that Spurgeon anticipates when God is at work is a preaching that not only takes place with intensity when it happens, but with real frequency and with continued vitality. The kind of preaching that doesn't kill a man. Preaching to a sleepy congregation kills ministers, not preaching to earnest people. When God is at work, the ministers go out and they get on and they preach and they preach and they preach and they do it willingly and cheerfully and eagerly and they are upheld by God and equipped for the work. Nothing to kick at then. Everyone at work, not a single squadron behindhand, but everyone where there are true Christians engaged together. And says Spurgeon, and, and these last sections I think are... Uh, stimulated by his own recent experience going over to Dublin to preach and he finds not only that on the vessels on which he comes and goes across the Irish Sea are there many converted sailors but he's preaching to Roman Catholics who are gathering in to hear the gospel and his point is that this is sweet wine and there's extraordinary conversion that what is striking about this is that God brings in people who we might otherwise have expected would have been far out and uh, not interested in the gospel. So the men who are loudest with their oaths become loudest in their songs. The most darling children of Satan have become the most earnest advocates for the truth. He's talking about the sailors on the boats and the, uh, the unbelievers there in Dublin. And so he says, this is what God does in revival. There's sweet wine on the mountains. There's a real a pressing on and a pressing forward. There's a, a great eagerness. There's a great intensity. There's a, a rapid progress in the gospel that the converts are not inferior to the best of the converts of ordinary seasons. The Romanist, the men who've never heard the gospel, they're as true in their faith once converted, as hearty in their love, as accurate in their knowledge, as zealous in their efforts as the best who've ever been brought to Christ Jesus. What then, says Spurgeon, is the doctrinal lesson taught in our text? What is taught to us by such revival? And it's just this, that God is absolute monarch of the hearts of men. God doesn't make these blessings dependent on the willingness of men. He gives an absolute 
promise because he has the key of men's hearts. He can induce the ploughman to overtake the reaper. He is the master of the soil. He can make the hardest and rockiest of ground to be abundantly fruitful. When God promises to bless his church and to save sinners, he does not add, but only if the sinners are willing to be saved. No, he leads free will in sweet captivity and free grace is all triumphant. This then is the reminder that when God chooses to bless, God will bless indeed. We see the church gradually built up and converted. And says Spurgeon, perhaps we lose the sense of a present God. In the the ordinary course of things, we can lose sight of the fact that God really is at work, the same kind of work. But when the Lord causes the tree suddenly to grow from sapling to a strong, tall monarch of the forest, then we say, this is God. Now, the point isn't that God isn't working when he works more slowly, but only when he works more rapidly. The point that Spurgeon makes is that when God works rapidly, we are reminded, we cannot help but acknowledge that God is manifestly at work in our midst. We are all blind and stupid in measure, and we want to see sometimes some of these quick upgoings, these extraordinary motions of divine influence, before we will fully understand God's power. So it's not that God is not now at work, but we cannot deny the wonder of the power of the working of God when we see this great ingathering. Third thing, a stimulus for further exertion. The duty of the church, says our preacher, is not to be measured by her success. It is as much the minister's duty to preach the gospel in adverse times as in propitious seasons. We might almost add it is more the duty. It is even more incumbent upon the preacher. We're not to think if God withholds the dew that we are to withhold the plough. God uses means. We're not to imagine that if unfruitful seasons come, we are therefore to cease from sowing our seed. That, that our business, says Spurgeon, then is to, to act. It is the business of the church to consider what our duty is, not the result of that duty even if the duty that we carry out brings no present reward. And, says Spurgeon, where we are today, we have happy opportunities. There's noble business to be done for Christ. Invest a little capital, a little effort, a little donation. And where you've done that, invest even more, because you're getting good interest back on your investments. So he says, work even if nothing seems to be happen, happening. And when something is happening, work all the harder. Recollect then, he says, that when this revival comes, instrumentality will still be wanted, will still be needed. Don't imagine that when God chooses to bless, though he can work without means, that he will work without means. The world will still require the preachers that God sends, the men and the women who will serve him in their proper sphere. And so the ploughman and the reaper are both still required. 
And so he says, don't let this opportunity pass you by. Don't overlook the opportunity that you have at this time. Don't let the wind blow on us and you have your sails all furled. And so the good ship should not speed across the ocean. Up with the canvas now. Put on every stitch of it. Let every effort be used while God is helping us. Let us be earnest co-workers together with him. These are the things that we desire. These are the, the seasons that need to be made much of. I think there's a real danger perhaps for us that when we see in days of smaller things, one or two coming in, that we're tending to say, well, that's wonderful and, and that's great and God has blessed us. And perhaps that makes us step back a little bit. Says Spurgeon, let that be all the more reason to press on. If you see something of blessing, make a yet greater investment. Don't make the kindnesses of God an excuse for laziness and dullness. Don't lose the opportunity, Christians. Will you let men be lost for want of effort, says Spurgeon? Will you suffer this all-blessed time to roll away unimproved? If so, the church of 1,860 is a craven church and unworthy of its time. And he among you, men and brothers, that has not an earnest heart today, if he is a Christian, is a disgrace to his Christianity. Let's again flip that a little bit. What are the church of 2021 or 2022? Are we a craven church? Do we have opportunity? Is there not necessity? Is the privilege of preaching the gospel not ours? Oh, well, let us go forth then, and perhaps all the more so because we are not seeing the blessing that we may desire. And if now we're bringing in the ones and the twos at God's command, may God grant that we may bring in the tens and the twenties and the hundreds, that God would pour out his spirit upon us and that the work would go forward with his smile and blessing. You see how Spurgeon has this a rich scriptural notion of the powerful works of God. He is not on the one hand suggesting that uh, this is just something that uh, a man can bring down, a man can secure by his own endeavour. He understands God's means to God's ends. He appreciates the, the power that God reveals in salvation, the wonder of his might, the glory that he shows when he makes bare his arm. And his point is that the very power of God ought to incite the church to labour. And the more you see of it, the more you should desire of it, the more eager you should become for it. And then a word of warning to those of you who do not know Christ. Now again, Spurgeon's preaching in an environment where people go to church and where large crowds have been gathering, but he knows too that there are people who come to hear him who never normally go to hear the word of God preached. And he says perhaps they're, they're starting to feel their need of a saviour. Perhaps they used to make a joke at the minister's expense, but they couldn't walk away without paying closer attention. And they've become uneasy about their souls and they're waiting for the next Sabbath and they've not yet given up their sins, but they're not finding their sins as pleasant as they used to be. They can't swear the once they did and they're starting to feel guilty about their transgressions. And here's a beautiful way. My dear friends, says Spurgeon, allow me to express my hearty joy that you are here. 
There's the spirit of a man who's seeking the blessing of God. Perhaps if somebody like that came into the churches where you or I serve, it might be people who are tutting or looking down their noses or thinking, oh, we don't want that type here. No, no, hearty joy. This is just where we want them. These are just the sinners who need the gospel. And let me also express the hope, he says, that you are here for a purpose you don't yet understand. God has a special favour to you, I do trust, and therefore he has brought you here. So he's eager to see people who wouldn't normally be in church hearing the gospel. He's eager to see the great sinners sitting under the sound of the good news. There's a warning too, he's frequently remarked. Jonathan Edwards found this in the uh, revival of the uh, 18th century, uh, that in any revival of religion, it is not often the children of pious parents that are brought in, but those who never knew anything of Christ before. Edward's experience was that people who had previously resisted the gospel, who'd been brought up under it and perhaps had then resisted the powerful ministry of the word when God did bless it, did not seem to be at all touched when the Lord was powerfully at work on a second occasion, during a second season. And here's Spurgeon with a similar warning. There are people who get accustomed to the gospel in this horrible sense, and sometimes when God works powerfully and suddenly, they are passed by because they neglected the opportunity that they did have. He reminds us that the ordinary means are usually blessed to those who constantly attend them, but the express effort and the extraordinary influence of the Spirit reach those who were outside the pale of nominal Christians and made no profession of religion. So there's an encouragement. During these days, as the Word of God goes forth, we should expect to see our young men and women being converted, our boys and our girls coming to faith in Jesus Christ, those who sit under the sermons week after week being converted in due course. But there's a wonder in revival that God is pleased to bring in those who are further out and bring them right in. And there's the danger that perhaps there'll be some who lose their opportunity because they despise what they then hear. God reaches out toward them. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. There was a harvest. There was a summer. And someone is not saved because even though God sent the gospel out to them and they heard the truth, they rejected that truth. And, he says, the core and marrow of damnation, then, is reserved for men who hear the truth and feel it too, but yet reject it and are lost. So if you're someone who hears the gospel Sunday by Sunday and has done so for a long time, then now is the moment to come to Jesus Christ, to trust in him. And if perhaps even you're listening to this random podcast and you didn't know you were going to and you can't believe you're still listening to it, now is the moment for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now is the time for you to trust in him who came into this world to suffer and die in the place of the ungodly, that through faith in him we might be spared the damnation of hell and brought into the bliss of heaven. There is a turning point, says our preacher, in each man's life when his character becomes fixed and settled. That turning point may be today. 
Spurgeon says where you sit now, that may be the moment where you will either come to Christ or you will turn your back upon Christ and you do not know whether or not you will ever be given another opportunity. So may the Spirit of Christ whisper in your heart, O man, yield, for Jesus invites you to come to him. May my Master smile into your face this morning and say, I love your soul, trust me with it, give up your sins, turn to me. O Lord Jesus, says the preacher, do it, and men shall not resist you. There's a beautiful blend in Spurgeon's labours between his absolute earnestness and his determination to close with men and grapple with them for the sake of the gospel. And then there's this utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, this delightful expectation that he will do what he has promised. I don't know the circumstances that you're in as you listen to this time or or place or environment, situation that you may be in, the church to which you belong. You may be in a season of rich blessing. You may be in a season of real dearth. But surely, with such promises as this before us, we should be preaching, praying, laboring, serving, striving, expecting, calling upon the name of the Lord for a blessing upon our own souls and the souls of others too. Let us then do these things and let us pray that God would also bless us with this sweet wine on the mountains, that the plower will overtake the reaper, the reaper will overtake the plower. There'll be this pressing on, this pushing forward, this bringing in, that God would be pleased to make his glory seen in the churches of Jesus Christ in these days. Then The day shall come, says the Lord, that the ploughman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that sows seed and the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. May God grant more of this in our day. And next week, if you're going to be listening in, God willing, we'll be listening to Spurgeon preaching about uh, John chapter 4, Jesus about his father's business, sermon 302, the featured sermon, and the sermons for the week 297 through to 303. Thank you for listening. May God bless all our souls with such spiritual riches as these for his glory's sake. Amen. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.